Father, thank you for the saints of old on whose shoulders we stand. We have received grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that you gift your church not just in geographically broad ways, but chronologically broad. Thank you for the life and influence of Augustine. May we see the sin. May we receive the grace uh, that's true and good and beautiful. Bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. So for the uninitiated who might not be aware, each year I pick a different theologian, different hero of the faith. I spend probably around 30 minutes a day uh, throughout the week reading, focusing on that one person, and, uh, and then a variety of biographies, reading their writings. Then I read about a variety of biographies and such about the character as well. And so, uh, anyway, that accumulates each year in me presenting uh, this lecture. And so, this past year was on Aurelius Augustine. His story begins in the rich, yes, Augustine. Uh, his story begins in the rich soil of North Africa. He was born November 13th, 354. This was after Christianity had become the state religion. So... Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a mandatory play. Uh, so you still had pagans all over the place, but the state religion was Christianity by this point. So this is after Constantine. It's after the emperor Julian the Apostate made the last big play for paganism uh, across the Roman Empire. He was born in the farm town of Thagast to his father Patricus, who was a pagan at that time and his well, more well-known mother, Monica, um, who was a Christian. And it, later on, his father would profess Christ uh, shortly before his death. He would receive a good education, which in that specific place, at that specific time, was focused on rhetoric, and he learned the art. But the thing about rhetoric is it's like a tool, and it can be used in a bad way, in a good way. So by rhetoric, they simply meant the art of speaking such that other people will nod their head in agreement. Whether or not they should wasn't under consideration. His, his, so he received a, a, a really peculiar uh, education in this way. It, it was pragmatic in its approach. There was the classical kind of elements to it, but void of any kind of, it was all pragmatic. It, it, was, it feels more modern in some sense, than it does classical in that way. Um, so it was isolated rhetoric. It was rhetoric just for rhetoric's sake. Peter Brown, perhaps his greatest biographer, writes, the content of this education was not as important, important as its aim. The aim had remained unchanged for some 800 years. It was still being vigorously pursued in the 4th century in the crowded, noisy schoolrooms of the teachers of rhetoric. This was to learn the art of words, to acquire that eloquence that is essential to persuade men of your case, to enroll your opinions before them. The ideal product of this education was the orator, a man, that is, who could give pleasure throughout his argument by his vivacity, by the feelings at his command, by the ease with which words came to him, perfectly adapted to dress his message in style. So, uh, to stick with the metaphor, it didn't matter so much what you were shooting at as long as you were hitting your target. Uh, that's the way 
rhetoric was thought of. At 17, he moves to Carthage to uh, finish out some more education, and he made a short return back home upon the death of his, uh, of his father, and so he's, he's a student, he's returned, he's finished that up, he returns home a bit for the death of his father, then he shortly thereafter returns to Carthage to begin a, uh, 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 well, to begin acting as a professor of rhetoric. Whenever he first visited Carthage as a student, he became enamored with the theater. And the theater uh, was known for its vulgar, like think Hollywood still, but even more so. It was just more identified with the sins of the populace. And he, he is lust inflamed. He um, soon acquired a mistress who he kept for a number of years, had a son, uh, Adeodatus with, um, and uh, also at this time he converts to Manichaeism, and he plunges deeper and deeper into that hole for about nine years. He's dealing with this, so he's been brought up within the Catholic Church, and Big C, true Catholic Church, the Church Universal, the the collective church at that time. He's brought up in that, and now he's, he's converting to Manichaeism, and his mother, uh, Monica, has been distraught for his soul anyway, and this just revs all that up. Um, Manny, who founded the religion, was really seeking to found a universal religion. Manichaeism was this weird blend of, of Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and Christianity. As to have broad appeal, it was rationalistic, it was appealing completely to the mind, and yet it was also uh, Gnostic and Docetist in the sense that it discounted the physical. It was very Greek in this way as well. Discount the physical, the physical is bad, elevate the spiritual. Um, and the, it was also dualistic uh, in that regard. Material's bad, spiritual's good. He rejected, Manny did, most of the Old Testament, a good chunk of the New and so this is where he is theologically. And um, as a teacher at this point, Augustine was in Carthage. He then taught briefly in Rome, you know, seeking the, the prestige, the best kind of position, the best kind of connections and all of these things. And after Rome, he didn't like Rome, um, and ended up in Milan and came under the influence of that well-known uh, presbyter, uh, bishop in Milan, Ambrose. And it was at this time that Augustine would be converted at the age of 32. And his mother would soon die. She followed him during all this time. And he went, whenever he went to Rome, she didn't know. And then she ends up in Rome. She's following him all this time. She's praying for him. Ambrose is reassuring her of her prayers for her son. She's, he's converted. She's delighted. And she dies shortly after his baptism. After his mother's death, he soon would find himself back home in Thagast, and he was seeking to establish a kind of monastic community there. And that just really wasn't working in the kind of backwater town of Thagast, and so he goes to Hippo. Hippo was the second great port city in North Africa after Carthage. And so he goes to Hippo, and while he's visiting there, the aged bishop, who really didn't... Uh, he, he wasn't from around there, and it showed. He didn't really get the language and the customs and stuff. But nonetheless, this, this older, revered bishop is needing an assistant, 
And here comes this great orator, now turned Christian, wanting to make, seek. And by monastic, he really meant more of a, a life of the mind is what he was seeking, to be free to write and to think and, and so forth. He's wanting to establish this kind of Christian monastic society. And Valerius kind of says, hey, there's the sky visiting. And uh, then the church uh, all says, yeah, you're right. And he's pressed into uh, the ministry in this way. He's made his assistant, he's a bishop whenever... Uh, well, no, he, he would just be a presbyter at this point. Whenever Valerius died some short time after, he would be uh, the bishop there. That was in 396. Uh, so uh, Hippo was, like most of North Africa, the granary of the empire. And uh, he was to remain there for 34 years until the end of his days, which came on the 28th day of the name of his month. Uh, the, the month of his name. There, I got it right that time. August, August 28th, uh, 4.30. Henry Chadwick wrote, No figure of the ancient world is more accessible to us. You can find out more on Augustine than any other ancient figure. We know more of him. And this, this quantity of information that we have about him is not simply due to the mass of writings that he's left us, but due to the very nature of his writings, of, of him uh, chiefly in his confessions, just putting the, you, you sense more of the man than you do in so many other, more, so many other ancient figures. He's not only accessible though, he yet in that remains august. You can easily grasp him, and get a sense of the man, and yet he is grasped in the way that one can easily touch a redwood. He, he's right there, you can see him, all his faults, all his foibles, and yet he remains majestic and otherworldly in a way. The augustness of Augustine lies not so much in his life as I've just simply presented it. There really isn't a, any, any kind of big deal there. The augustness of Augustine is owing more to his, the life of the mind and to the events, that the currents of, of the times, which he would just happen to get caught up in, that made Augustine as much as anything. Uh, the controversies and the currents, then, that, that created this mind. First, the controversies. There are three prominent ones. There were a number of controversies he was constantly embroiled in, but these three are foremost. First, that regarding Manichaeism. After he converted, a lot of his early writings were dealing with that. So I uh, won't elaborate anymore there. The second one would be Donatism. And to grasp Donatism, we need to back up a bit in history. So the Emperor Diocletian led the last great persecution of Christians. And whenever that happened, that was sometime around three, early 300. Whenever that happened, a number of Christians and a number of bishops um, denied Christ. And the Donatist said that if they did, they needed to be rebaptized. And if it was a bishop who denied Christ and he was not rebaptized, his ministry was then rendered um, moot. It, it meant nothing, it wasn't legit. And so. <laughs> Because this was the case in the, in the Catholic Church at large that this was happening so often, they became a kind of separ a separatist movement. 
And, but Donatism was really limited to North Africa. So much so that the majority of the people were Donatists. Uh, whenever Augustine took this church at Hippo, it was the smaller church. And that was across the board throughout North Africa during those early years of his ministry. Um, so the Donatists were not so much heretics. There was some heresy involved, but they were not so much heretics as they were schismatics. Uh, they, they sowed schism, division into the church because they insisted on this kind of purity of life that rendered one's ministry uh, moot after, after one would have denied Christ. And it's from this controversy that we see Augustine's doctrine of the church emerge. So this is the, the, this is the Augustine that Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, this is the Augustine that Rome is fond of. And the third controversy stems from the Augustine we Calvinists are most fond of, and that is the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius was a British monk who denied original sin. He said that man in and of himself, autonomously of his own free will, could choose the good or the bad. He could render himself righteous. That Jesus was just there, basically, as a, a help along the way. Like, we don't need the boost, but he's there to, to boost us in this quest for righteousness. And from this controversy, Augustine's theology of grace would emerge. And so it is that, as we'll, you always see throughout church history, that heresy served orthodoxy. That all of the great orthodox confessions are crafted in response to heresy. And so, at this point, uh, we're, we're in uh, the, the 4th century, 5th uh, century. Uh, by this point, the church has clarified in response to heresy, the Trinity and the person of Christ. And what the Pelagian controversy brings to the table is clarity regarding soteriology, the study of salvation. And so this is now a conversation, and yet it would have to remain for, uh, 50, for a thousand years until we come to the Reformation for Augustine's theology of grace to really come into bloom. Uh, for those things that he was setting down to, to reach all the way through. And so it's not just theological controversy, though. It's also historical currents that are setting the stage for the, uh, uh, the, the augustness of Augustine to be displayed. Rome was fading. 410, Alaric and the Visigoths sack Rome. And then it would be shortly after the wake of this that the Vandals would invade North Africa and Hippo would come under siege. And it was, it was uh, so Hippo had been, was under siege at the time that Augustine dies. Um, he dies before they take the city, but that's the setting. And so as the sun is setting on the Roman Empire, Augustine is is writing his magnum opus, The City of God, wherein he compares the, the Babylon of this world to the heavenly Jerusalem above. So this year, I, uh, I had ambitions to study three works of Augustine in particular. Um, 
normally I try to read as broadly as I can of whatever guy I pick up. But with Augustine, I was going to focus. My, my intent was to read the Confessions, read the City of God, and then read his work on the Trinity. And the, the City of God ate my lunch. Confessions went, uh, uh, read the Confessions before, it went pretty smoothly. Um, and then I came to the City of God and spent a long time there and didn't touch uh, the Trinity. And so it is that uh, we're simply going to skim the surface of these two works and, but I want you to have some impression of the output of this man nonetheless. We have over 100 books still in existence. These aren't all the ones he wrote. These are the ones we have. This is just unprecedented in ancient literature. Over 100 books, 307 letters, and 583 sermons. You, you see... He's accessible, and yet August. You can grab of him more readily than anyone, and in doing so, you realize just how big he is. So uh, before we dive in, let's get a, get, some, get a bigger sense of that. Gerald Bray says, Augustine is by any standard one of the giants of world civilization. His writings continue to be read and studied from every conceivable angle. New editions and translations of his Latin works appear with great regularity, and the amount of secondary literature is more than any one person can hope to master. And so you, you see this even in secular universities. They can't ignore Augustine. He's that big of a figure. Um, but our aims are more narrow. We're not just looking at history in this broad sense. We're looking at church history in particular. And um, what I'm saying can be sensed in this. It's been said, particularly by Warfield, better than anyone, that the Reformation was a battle over who owned Augustine. That, that's the magnitude of the man we're dealing with here. So Warfield writes, in, in very fact, there remained to the end of his life, there remained to the end, as the same writer puts it, two Augustines, which is to, as much to say that he embraced in his public teaching inconsistent elements of doctrine. He goes on, Two children were thus struggling in the womb of his mind. There can be no doubt which was the child of his heart. His doctrine of the church he had received whole from his predecessors and, gave him, and himself gave it only the sharpness and depth which ensure its vitality. His doctrine of grace was all his own, his greatest contribution to Christian thought. We may say with decision that it was due only to the shortness of human life, to the distraction of his mind with multifarious cares, to the slowness of his solid advance in doctrinal development, that the two, that the two elements of his thought did not come to their fatal conflict before his death. Had they done so, there can be no question what the issue would have been. The real Augustine was the Augustine of the doctrine of grace. Finally, he concludes, He bequeathed it to the church for solution. And the church required a thousand years for the task, but even so, it was Augustine, it is Augustine, who gave us the Reformation. For what was the Reformation inwardly considered? But the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. 
And so we'll deal with the confessions first, and that is where you see his doctrine of grace in bud. It, it, would, it would come into fuller bloom, but you see everything there. It's his most well-known work. It was written sometime around 397, a few years after he had been bishop. From its inception, it was without pair, without, without peer, without comparison. It's often seen as the germ for the genre of autobiography. But that, there's some truth in that, but that isn't, that isn't as exact as it could be. Peter Brown points out that the confessions are a masterpiece of strictly intellectual autobiography. Like the, when you read the confessions, you're not looking at his life so much, and not even really intellectual in the strictest sense. They are a spiritual biography. And so it is that the, the historian Philip Schaff points us in the right direction when he says, of all autobiographies, none has so happily avoided the reef of vanity and self-praise, and none has won so much esteem and love through its honesty and humility as that of St. Augustine. Moorfield says the real analogs of Augustine's confessions are to be found not then in introspective biographies whose sole purpose is to depict a human soul, but in such accounts of spiritual experiences as are given us in books like John Newton's Authentic Narrative. If you've ever read, uh, that's one to commend to you as well. Read Newton's Authentic Narrative. But before you read that, read, read the chief one that uh, Warfield then goes on to make a point about as the best comparison to Augustine's Confessions, and that is John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chiefest of Sinners. It's a... It's, it's akin in this way, that the aim of the writers is not to disclose information about self, but to magnify the grace of God. That's what all three of those works have in common that makes them so distinct. And then bringing this to the fore, just as you read it, real quickly, who's read the Confessions? I'm curious. Has anyone read the Confessions? They are, they are a prayer. The whole work is a prayer expressed to God. And that's maintained throughout. So here, Augustine, in his own words, expressing to God what he's aiming at by this very public prayer. I intend to remind myself of my past foulness and carnal corruptions, not because I love them, but so that I may love you. My God, it is from love of your love that I make the act of recollection. The recalling of my wicked ways is bitter in memory, but I do it so that you may be sweet to me, a sweetness touched by no deception, a sweetness serene and content. Elsewhere he says, He who is making confession to you is not instructing you of that which is happening within him. The closed heart does not shut out your eye. And your hand is not kept away by the hardness of humanity, but you melt that when you wish. You sing a bit of the sovereign grace there. You melt that when you wish, either in mercy and punishment. And there is none who can hide from your heat. Let my soul praise you that it may love you and confess to you your mercies that it may praise you. 
What Augustine is after can be seen in the opening words of his confession, some of the most of his most famous words. You are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so in one sense, you could say Augustine was doing this for himself to find his rest and his peace in magnifying his God because he realizes that's how we were made. And so for Augustine, you see that confession had double meaning. It meant not just confessing his sin, but doing that to this ultimate aim of confessing the grace and mercy of his God. One way you can see this is by the memorable recollect, the most memorable kind of recollection of sin in his youth that he brings out. The stealing of pears. He writes, I wanted to carry out an act of theft and did so. Driven by no kind of need other than my inner lack of any sense of or feeling for justice. Wickedness filled me. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and doing of what was wrong. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, though attractive in neither color nor taste. To shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears, I and a gang of naughty adolescents set off late at night after in our usual pestilential way, we had continued our game in the streets. We carried off a huge load of pears, but they were not for our feast, but merely to throw to the pigs. Even if we ate a few, nevertheless, our pleasure lay in doing what was not allowed. The fruit was beautiful, but was not that which my miserable soul coveted. I had a better quality, I had better quality of pears, But those I picked solely with the motive of sealing. I threw away what I had picked. My feasting was only on the wickedness I took the pleasure in enjoying. If any of those pears entered my mouth, my criminality was the quaint sauce. And now, Lord my God, I inquire what was the nature of my pleasure in the theft? The act had nothing lovely about it. None of the loveliness found in equity and prudence or in the human mind, whether in the memory or the senses or in physical vitality. Nor was it beautiful in the way that stars are, noble in their courses, or the earth and the sea full of newborn creatures, which as they are born take the place of those which die. Not even in the way that spacious vices have a flawed reflection of of beauty. Why did he steal? Do you notice how what what he's been drawing out in this? Did you notice that he said the fruit was? Beautiful. And it's a tree. He, he could have picked from a variety of instances from his adolescence, no doubt. Why does he pick this one in particular? 
What's he wanting to link it to? He's linking it to the garden, you see. He's wanting to show you that his sin is all our sin. It's not so much in in the magnitude of what he's doing that makes him an incredibly great sinner. He's taken you within and he's shown you the corruption and the depravity that lies there. Augustine's sin is all our own. And the sin that was his own, he paints it as such so that the grace that is God's and His alone, could be put more prominently on display. Here here Augustine is, and it's all sin within. And then he puts forward God and His grace, so that you see all of His salvation, all of His hope is in God and God alone. The moment of His conversion, this, this highlighted moment of sin, is with a tree. And the moment of His conversion he draws emphasis that it was in a garden. He says, As I was saying this, weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, I do not know which, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. Anyone know the the Latin phrase here? Tale lege? Pick up and read. At once, my countenance changed, and I began to think intently whether there might be some sort of children's game in which such a chant is used, but I could not remember having heard of one. I checked the flood of tears. He's in agony concerning his soul and has been for some time. I checked the flood of tears and stood up. I interpreted it slowly as a divine, uh, solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find, the book being he had a copy of Paul's works nearby that he had brought with him into the garden. Um, for I had heard how Antony, uh, let me skip that, uh, by, by such an inspired, yeah, skip that. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was stand, sitting, his friend. There I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh in its lust. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of the sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Well, Augustine's confession was not just of his past sin and newfound grace. He says this, As a saint, my entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. He loves you less who loves you together. He loves you less who together with you loves something which he does not love for your sake. Oh love, you ever burn and are never extinguished. Oh charity, my God, set me on fire. You command continence. Grant what you command and command what you will. And that 
was the line that didn't set well with Pelagius. Grant what you command and command what you will. And from there, Pelagius said, well, if man is to be truly righteous and if God is to remain righteous and commanding, man must have the power in and of himself to choose the good. So this was the pebble that stuck in Pelagius's shoe and it was the germ then for the doctrine of God's sovereign grace that Augustine would unfold more and more in the controversy. Surely better to say that here we see his doctrine uh, that, that uh, well, it, you, you see this heart at this point. Here's the germ. You see this heart that's leaning dependently upon God in all. Concerning his literary output now, Confessions is his most well-known work, but it's not his greatest. If, if Confessions is the one hit, not the one hit wonder. It's that, it's that hit. It's his chief radio hit that everyone knows about. Then the City of God is his um, symphony, which is his greatest work, but just no one listens to that thing anymore. No one, no one listens to that kind of music anymore. That's his symphony. The City of God was written in, over a period of 12 years. It took him, and you, you see it. You start reading it, you see it. It's written over this period of 12 years. It's, uh, it's apologetic and historic in nature. Um, so it's giving, it's, it's tracing out the histories of the City of Man, the City of God, and it's offered as an apologetic for the City of God. So Philip Schaff writes, Schaff, The city of God is the most powerful, comprehensive, profound, and fertile production in refutation of heathenism and vindication of Christianity, which the ancient church has bequeathed to us and forms a worthy close to her literary contest with, the, with Greco-Roman paganism. It is a grand funeral discourse upon the departing universal empire of heathenism and a lofty salutation to the approaching universal order of Christianity. While even Jerome deplored the destruction of the city, uh, of the city, the downfall of the empire, as the omen of the approaching doom of the world, the African father saw in it only a passing revolution preparing the way for new conquest of Christianity. So it's, that's a fun historical reference point to see the Roma's, Roma's burning, and Jerome's... Jerome's uh, this, is, this is it. This is all the end. And Augustine's saying, hey, this looks good. Um, they're two totally different mindsets, and it re really reminds you of Christian approaches to eschatology today. Um, and the, the, the arrogance of a lot of Americans whenever, boy, American, uh, America's uh, going, to, going to the pit. Jesus must be coming back soon. Uh, come again. Uh, so uh, they're, they're Jerome's uh, counterpart. And my argument is it's better to stand with Augustine. Standing at that remarkable turning point of history, Sh Schaff continues, um, he considers the origin, progress, and end of the perishable kingdom of this world and the imperishable kingdom of God from the fall of man to the final judgment where at last they fully and forever separate into heaven and hell. 
So Jerome said this much. He said, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? Augustine, like Abraham, looked to that city whose builder and founder is God. He was looking at it all with the eyes of faith. The clearest statement of what his aim was in the book comes a good way about in the middle when he's clarifying, okay, here's what I've done and here's what I'm going to do. He writes, in these 10 books, that's the 10 that he's already covered, in these 10 books, um, though not meeting, I dare say, the expectation of some, yet I have, as the true God and Lord has vouchsafed me to aid me, satisfied the desire of certain persons by refuting the objections of the ungodly who prefer to see their own gods to the founder of the holy city about which we undertook to speak. Of these ten books, the first five were directed against those who think we should worship the gods for the sake of the blessings of this life, and the second five against those who think we should worship them for the sake of the life which is to be after death. And so he's covering some philosophical apologetic ground. The first five books, to those who say, if we had worshipped the pagan gods, the city of Rome would still be standing. So he deals with those guys. And then the other ones, the more sophisticated ones, say we should worship them so that things go better for us in eternity. He deals with those next. And he says, And now, in fulfillment of the promise which I made in the first book, I shall go on to say, as God shall aid me, what I think needs to be said regarding the origin, history, and deserved ends of the two cities. So first of all, he's, he's rebuking the city of man for saying the reason Rome is burning is because of Christians. So he's offering up this apologetic in that light first. And then he says, now I want to trace out the origins, the history, and the ends of these two cities. And he goes on, which, as already remarked, are in this world commingled and implicated with one another. Now, the present state of the world... um, didn't speak against Christianity. He's arguing that. Rome wasn't falling because it had turned from paganism toward Christ. And one, here's just to give you a sense of one angle he took at this. He said, rather than look at the suffering and, and, and saying we should have been worshiping the pagan gods instead of Christ, he said, rather than looking at the suffering, look at the men who are suffering. Look at the men in the midst of suffering. He points out that suffering has been a constant factor throughout all of Rome's history. And he says, look at the men suffering under paganism and the men suffering as Christians, as saints. He says, wherefore, though good and bad men suffer alike, they both suffer, we must not suppose that there's no difference between the men themselves because there is no difference in what they both suffer. For even in the likeness of the sufferings, there remains an unlikeness in the sufferers. And though exposed to the same anguish, virtue and vice are not the same thing. For as the same fire causes gold to glow brightly and chaff to smoke, and under the same flail the straw is beaten small while the grain is cleansed, and as the lees are not mixed with the oil, though squeezed out of the vat by the same pressure, So the same violence of affliction proves, 
purges, clarifies the good, but damns, ruins, exterminates the wicked. He's saying, you're looking at the suffering as a reason to say, not Christianity, but paganism. And I'm telling you, the suffering is telling you. If you look at the person's suffering right now, under the midst as Rome is falling, you look at the person's suffering, you see gold and you see that which is just being burnt up. And thus it is uh, that in the same affliction, the wicked detest God and blaspheme while the good pray and praise. So material a difference does it make. Not what ills are suffered, but what kind of man suffers them. For stirred up with the same movement, mud exhales a horrible stench and ointment emits a fragrant odor. And the suffering is proving the, uh, it's proving Christianity is what he's saying. And at the same time, he would say, it's not fully clear where everyone belongs, to which city their citizenship will finally find its, uh, its place. He says, Let's bear, but let this city bear in mind that among her enemies lie hid those who are destined to be fellow citizens, that she may not think it a fruitless labor to bear what they inflict as enemies until they become confessors of the faith. So too, as long as she is a stranger in the world, the city of God has in her communion and bound to her by the sacraments some who shall not eternally dwell in the lot of the saints. Of these, some are not now recognized, others declare themselves and do not hesitate to make common cause with our enemies and murmuring against God, whose sacramental badge they wear. These men you may today see thronging the churches with us, tomorrow crowding the theaters with the godless. But we have the less reason to despair of the reclamation even of such persons. If among our most declared enemies, there are now some unknown to themselves who are destined to become our friends. We, we don't need to get upset whenever we see one of our friends go over there because most assuredly, some of our enemies will be brought in. In truth, these two cities are entangled together in this world and intermixed until the last judgment affect their separation. I now proceed to speak, as God shall help me, of the rise, progress, and end of these two cities. And that I write, I write for the glory of the city of God, that being placed in comparison with the other, it may shine with a brighter luster. So the kingdoms of this world, he then goes on to argue, are as nothing in comparison with the city of our God. Incomparably more glorious, he writes, than Rome is that heavenly city in which for victory you have truth, for dignity, holiness, for peace, felicity, for life, eternity. These two cities, he says, are formed by two loves. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. It's peculiar to think how cities form. And the kind of city mindset that begins to develop among a people, the kind of nationalism that a large... Whenever you're thinking cities historically, you are thinking nations quite often. Uh, for the, the, uh, the polis, the, the, the city was the nation in so many instances. And so to think of the kind of love that would bind the people together 
And you think of how that's displayed in, in, in more healthy ways throughout history, secular history. And then you think, begin to think about this, how some people you can see inside the mooring two citizenships. You can see a kind of love of the city that, uh, and this goes with kind of American uh, expressions of Christianity so often, that insist on having a flag just as much as a cross on the stage. You with me? There, there are two loves there, and it's, it's confused and muddled, and they actually think that the, the loves are identical. And what Augustine's good here is, yes, there should be, there, there, are, there are healthy elements of patriotism and love for your country, but you shouldn't confuse. There, there, are two, there, there are two ways this is going. All these things are, this is all fading. The city of man, all of it, is going, to a, it's going away. This heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, will endure forever. Let there be no mistakes whenever these two citizenships in any way conflict. Honor the emperor but you never do so at the sacrifice of bowing to your Lord. Whenever these two citizens conflict, there's no mistaking where loyalty lies. So he says, they've been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. By the way, also think about this, that the ungodly cannot but love the city in an ungodly way. If there is ever any healthy, does this not speak to our nation historically? If there is ever any healthy patriotism, it must be because there, there's a mass of, of, of morality and virtue owing to the gospel and to Christ. Whenever you erode at that, you're left with nothing but a bad kind of love of the city. He goes on. Um, the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up his head in its own glory. The other says to its God, Thou art my glory in the lifter up of mine head. In the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by love of ruling. In the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying while the former take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And therefore the wise men of the one city live according to man, have sought for profit to their own bodies or souls or both. And those who have known God glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, that is, glorying in their own wisdom and being possessed by pride, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to beast and four-footed beast and creeping things. They were either leaders or followers of the people in adoring images and worshipped and served the, the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. But in the other city, there's no human wisdom, but only godliness, which offers due worship to the true God and looks for its reward in the society of the saints or holy angels as holy, uh, um, as holy men that God may be all in all. Let me wrap this up. In Augustine, you see this mixture of truth and error. In our gratitude for the truth, we shouldn't ignore the error. In 
are acknowledging the error, we shouldn't fail to appreciate the truth. Augustine was a horrible exegete. His commentaries, his commentary on the Psalms, was perhaps the most disappointing commentary I've ever consulted. Mostly do because I was expecting so much and delivered with so little. It was Augustine after all, and then I find out he's a horrible exegete. But the thing is, he was so familiar with the big storyline of the Bible and the message of grace, he was so familiar with that, and he always wanted to see Christ wherever he was. That's why you get some loony things whenever you start reading in, in, in some Old Testament passage, especially about him making Christ out of something that there wasn't anything to be made out of. He's such a horrible exegete, but because he wants to see Christ, because he's, his heart is naturally inclined to grace, even when he, he, he goes wrong, and yet he's going wrong in the right direction. That is not what that passage means, but what you're saying is generally true of the Scriptures. And and that speaks a lot to getting the big story of the Bible right, of getting your biblical theology so good and well, that even if you mess up on a particular passage, you you still aren't going off into heresy. Precisely because of his follies, I have no doubt that what Augustine would most want us to see in looking at his life is grace. He had no problem owning up, as you see in his confessions, because he wanted God's grace to stand most prominent. And for seeing it, he would have us, the people of God, love and praise, not Augustine, but the truly august and awesome God of all, our triune God, the God of our salvation.